0: She said, this is serious. We are praying for you. And after she prayed, Prince said, Amen.
1: Wow. It's a miracle. Absolutely. she's the the longest free fall without a parachute.
2: My life flashed before my eyes. All I knew was I had multiple organ
3: failure and my body was shutting down and this one particular doctor stayed with me and he had to restart my heart three times in the middle of the night.
4: She actually did pass away very briefly and they brought her
5: back. Look at each other. Uh, I just said thank you.
6: Chapter 1, Girl Who Fell from the Sky by Stanley M. Brooks
1: And that's the true story of Julianne Kepké, who in 1972 was living in Peru going to the American school. She was 18, uh, was in her senior year. Her parents were noted zoologists. She had lived part of her childhood in the Amazon. Her parents were cataloging butterflies and bats, and then when she got to middle school, they moved her to Lima, and she grew up there. Spoke perfect German, perfect English, perfect Spanish, and uh, because it was uh, they're on a different schedule than us, because their seasons are different than us, uh, their school year ends in December. So she was both graduating and going to her prom in December, and. Uh, her dad wanted them to go to the Amazon uh, on Christmas Eve and she wanted to stay and so he went early and she and her mom stayed behind in Lima and she went to her prom graduated with her friends and then they got on a plane. And when the plane was over the Amazon it was hit by lightning twice and disintegrated in midair. and she was in the window seat still strapped in and as she said the I didn't leave the plane, the plane left me. And she found herself uh, at 15,000 feet uh, in her chair, upside down, pinwheeling. And uh, she fell, blacked out, fell, hit the canopy of the Amazon, which broke her fall. It's a miracle, absolutely. She's the longest free fall without a parachute. And the canopy broke her fall and she uh, landed in the Amazon, woke up, had nothing but a broken collarbone that she knew of She had one shoe, lost her glasses, and for the next nine days followed the river and the lessons that she learned from her father and her own desire not to die and was rescued. And uh, she's a friend of mine now. She's now in her 50s and she's an extraordinary woman. She spends half her year in Munich and the other half in the Amazon trying to save the rainforest. And uh, we're Going to go down to Bogota and uh, and and the Amazon, and hopefully tell that story at the beginning of next year.
6: Wow. Chapter two, two
5: teachers by Bill Duke. I grew up as a racist. I hated all white people because of slavery and segregation. So my father and mother go through. I just hated white. I just. And I grew up with an angry young black man, and I was tall and awkward, and I didn't talk much, and I wrote journals and stuff, and da 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 da. And um, these two people I'll never forget. Who oh, changed my life? Mrs. Jean Walker, English teacher, very stoic and like this, walking around the class. She told me nine times not to write in my journal when she was teaching, and I just ignored her. Just racist white woman and one day um, she says, Duke, stay here after class. She says, give me that book. I said, what? The journal. Give it to me. I said, I am not giving anything. She said, if you don't give me the journal, I'll fail in the class and you can't pass through the journal ladder, pissed off. Hated her. Come back to class the next several weeks before spring break and looked at her like, if I could punch you in your damn face, man. Spring break ends, come back to class. And the first day, I'm going into class. She says, Duke, come here. She gives me back my journal and this book. I said, What is this? She says, the National Poetry Contest book. So, what are you giving this to me for? She says, look on page 49. She put two of my poetry poems in there and it won. I looked at her. This is somebody I hated. She had taken, she had read my book, my journal took the best poems out and submitted them to a national poetry contest and I won the prize. I was speechless and she knew I was speechless. She says, there's nothing to say. You're good at what you do. That changed my mind. I wasn't quite sure how to think about race then because that never happened to me. And then I went to Dutch Community College. And you know, James Hall was the dean. He was in the Navy and stuff. And I'd gotten a scholarship to Boston University after Dutchess and I went to... but you know, it was difficult. I got a scholarship for my classes, but I had to work for room and board and food and everything. And I was working seven days a week exhausted and the grades went that great and separate, so forth. I just going to the arts college. I decided I was going to come home to Poughkeepsie and I was going to stay there for a year, quit BU, and uh, get a job, make money so I can save it for that at IBM. I went during the summer up to visit my friends at BU. And, I'm leaving Dr. Hall. Uh, he says, Hey Duke, come here. I said, I, I gotta go, Doctor. He says, Duke, come here, come here. Oh, Jesus guy's a boring ass white man. I can't stand this. I go into those offices just to be courteous. He says, Have a seat. I said, Okay. How you doing, Duke? I'm okay. He said, You're going to Boston University, right? Yeah, well, I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm going, but I'm quitting. I'm staying in Poughkeepsie for a year and going to go back next year. He says, "No, you're not." I said, what are you talking about? He goes into his vest pocket and hands an envelope to me. I said, "What is this?" He said, "Open it." In the envelope. It was a check of his own money that paid for three years of my room and board at Boston University. I looked in this man's, white man's face. I'm supposed to hate. He doesn't say a word. We look at each other. Uh, I just said, thank you. He did not say a word. He put out his hand and he said, don't disappoint me. See, something happens to your racism after that. It's supposed to be your evil enemy that's responsible for the negative in your life and everything, the devil, the the system, the creature. Just give me a check to cover all of my expenses for three years. How do you hate that? Life-changing. So I evolved, you know, in my humanity to understand you cannot put a blanket on any of everything, of anything. It's all about the human being, the person, the individual, who they really are behind what their skin color is, behind what their words are, their position. It makes no difference to know the human. If they respect you, you respect them. Simple. Arab, Chinese, Japanese, Jewish, white, black, green, Hispanic, those topical services, that's a limited perception. You have the courage to uh, engage people at their level of humanity. You're living. It's easier to dismiss you because. I see you and I make assumptions. I learned a long time ago A-S-S-U-M-E means it makes an ass out of you and an ass out of me to assume. And I was taught by those two incidents. It was incredible. If it wasn't for those two people I wouldn't probably be here today. And never asked for anything. All they say is to be your best. That's a reward. It's the truth.
6: Chapter Three Thank God They Professionals by Romine Johnson.
2: I was living, um, I wasn't doing a show at the time, but I was living on the other side of town, and my dad was sick in the hospital, and my mother, and I actually had my car at that point. And my mother was at the hospital all day. She said, well, you know what? Um, I, I just don't feel good, you know, being at the house by myself. Can you come over here and spend the night at the house? I said, oh, of course. I have my own apartment. I said, oh, yeah. So she said, well, look, I've been at the hospital all day. I don't have no food, I haven't cooked. Maybe you ought to stop at McDonald's or something and get you something. I said, oh, OK. And I stopped at the McDonald's. I went through the drive through It was kind of late at night. And I ordered my food, and the girl said, um, well, can you uh, pull over? Cause you know we're we'll cooking and bringing out to you. I said okay. So I'm sitting in the car and it's cold. and I'm running my gas. I'm like, oh wait a minute. So I said, well, I'm gonna go inside. So I came inside and she looked. I said, I'm the guy you told her to pull over. She said, oh okay. So they said we haven't even got it ready yet. So so I'm standing at the counter, and there was like four of us, four guys at the counter, you know, getting our food. And the little boy in front of me, you know, the little McDonald's boy, he's like looking at me, and all of a sudden. He looks over like this and he starts doing this. And I'm looking at him like, what the look you got? I'm looking at him like, what? He's a. And I look over, a guy got a sawed off shotgun pointed right at my head. And he's telling me, raise your hands, motherfucker. And I'm my hands up. And these guys proceeded to rob the McDonald's. Oh, wow. And. What he did was, it was two. One guy came in on the other side, the other door, the backup guy, and he uses me as a shield. Oh. And he got the gun under my arm, I like my arms up, he puts the gun under here, and he's got the gun right in the face of that little boy. Oh, wow. And he says, empty the register. And the little boy, naturally, I, uh, he said, empty the register. So. The manager, a female at this time, she's down here, and the guy with the sawed-off, he says, okay, empty all the registers. She empties all the registers except mine, and then he says, okay, open the safe. Mm. And she says, well, I can't, I don't have a combination, it's a drop box. She says, no, you can open the safe. She says, I can't open it, they come every night and get the money, the security come every night and get the money, I can't open it. He says, you lying. He says, get out on the ground, bitch. She gets down on the ground on the floor of the other place and he leans over the counter and he cocks the gun and he puts it on the side of He He says, I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to ask you one last time, open the safe. So she's like this and she's like, ah, oh, she starts crying, please don't kill me, I can't open the safe. I got a baby at home, please, it's just me and my baby, please, please. And I'm like this and I'm just looking and I'm just like, oh my God. And I got the guy behind me with the little boy like this and I'm like this. And I'm like, oh, and I'm like this, and all of a sudden, the guy uncocks the gun. And the next thing on my mind is, thank God, they're professionals. Professionals don't want to shoot anybody. See, I found that out from being in Detroit around the hood. Professionals don't want to shoot anybody. They want to get in and get out. So. He says, okay, we're finished getting the money. She jumps up, she gets the money, she gets down to my register, little boy, this McDonald's money. And we said, give him the money, give him the money. we yelling and screaming and they said, shut up. We didn't shut up, give him the money, give him the money. It was just pandemonium. So this manager, she knocks him out the way, goes in his register and get the money and put it in one of the big McDonald's bags and hand it to the guy. So. The first guy out of the place is the guy that had the pistol under my arm. The last guy out, he says, anybody trying anything, I'm gonna come back and kill everybody. He comes down the line of us, they didn't even rob us, he comes down the line of us and takes the, 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 the gun across all our backs, the small of my back. I had this gun go down the small of my back and I'm telling you, my life flashed before my eyes. When people say, oh my life flashed? I went from being a baby shitting in my pants, in my diaper, all the way up to the. It was just like that. I'm like, oh, and I'm like, oh God, oh, oh, like this. And he left out. When he left out, they took off running. I looked. They took off running. All of the customers jumped over the counter, and we was all behind the thing. By this time, the cops came in because they put they pushed the silent alarm. And I got to the house, and my mother said, "Oh," she said, "You didn't get your food." I'm like. No, I didn't get it. So she says, uh, what's wrong? I said, we got stuck up at McDonald's. My mother's like, oh, okay. My mother got mad at me when I said, I have to remember what that felt like because one day I'm gonna have to act and have to recreate that experience. My mother got mad at me. <laughs> that was the end of that story, but that's what happened. My mother said, what? You and in that damn acting. And that's when I really finally realized this is it. This is where I'm supposed to be.
6: Chapter Four: Prince's Principles by Alex Munoz.
0: I moved to Los Angeles before I got accepted to film school, and um, I just figured if I don't get into USC or UCLA or AFI, I'll, you know, go assistant director or get a job at a production company over the studio. So. I um, the second day I was in LA I got an internship with a company called Propaganda Films and on my second day of the job um, a casting director says hey um, what's your name and I said Alex she said oh her name is Lisa Fields and she said um would you like to be a stand-in for a famous rock star I'm like well who is it and she said well I can't tell you I said nah I don't want to be a stand-in because I want to be behind the camera so I went back to my boss Stephen Price and I said hey um, Lisa Fields wants me to be a stand-in for a rock star she won't tell me who it is and I don't want to do it and he said why? I said because I want to be a director I don't want to be in front of the camera I want to be behind the camera he said you have to do it you've never been on a professional film set so I raced back and she was on the phone ready to hire somebody I said I'll do it I'll do it she said okay so the next day I'm on the set and the DP says, okay, Alex, you can leave now. And I turn around and I'm face to face with Prince and wow. I'm like, I really wasn't a big Prince fan at that time, but I was looking down at him and our noses were like this far apart. I'm like, wow, she got four-inch heels on and I'm taller than you. And he just laughed and he goes, can we uh, switch places? And I said, sure. So um, anyway, we were told not to talk to Prince, they said do not talk to him but he would talk to me and on day six I got my letter of acceptance from USC and um, my roommate got the letter and she said I have something really important to give you. I said okay well I'm in downtown LA and I'm on this music video shoot, can you bring it? So she gave me the letter, I opened it up and I went into the set and I said I was really excited I said I got into USC film school and everyone started clapping and Prince said I'm like what (laughs) he goes come here I'm like well what did I do so he said "Um, so you're going to be a filmmaker I said yes he said let me hear you say that I said say what he said let me hear you say you're going to be a filmmaker and I said I'm going to be a filmmaker and he said I want you to listen closely there are four rules I want you to consider abiding by if you are going to pursue filmmaking in this town. I said okay so he said first one always he pointed up always remember God the creator always remember God and your creator. Number two always remember where you come from because when you forget where you come from you die as an artist and then number three was um, break the rules if you follow the rules. You're going to be boring, and you're going to fade fast. And number four was always give back. You must give back as an artist. And I said okay, and he said repeat, repeat what I said, and I did. I call these my four purple cornerstones. Remember God where you come from. Um, never forget uh, where you come from. I'm sorry. Let me start over. I will always remember. The 4 I call them my four purple cornerstones. Remember God and the Creator. Never forget where you come from. Break the rules and always, always give back. And he said, grace is really important in your journey. So after he tested me on the four you know, core principles he told me, he told Rosie Gaines, his backup singer, he said, Rosie, pray for this brother that he does not go down the dark path. He needs to stay on the path of light. So Rosie Gaines took my hands, placed them on Prince's piano, and pray, made a prayer of protection that I wouldn't be seduced by the dark side, you know, well, all the, what Prince called the fleshly temptations. And she said, This is serious. We are praying for you. And after she prayed, Prince said, Amen. Wow. And he said, Don't forget what I told you. I said, I, I won't. So imagine that is a priceless encounter that cannot be measured. I just moved to LA, I just I finished my undergraduate work at Santa Barbara. For him to take the time to tell me these things and share with me his four core principles and for him to ask his backup singer Rosie Gaines to pray for me, I never forget this. And one of the reasons why when I decided to move forward with making FYI films a non-profit I rummaged through my mind I remember Prince saying always give back and he helped me. I don't think I'd be talking about FY films if Prince didn't tell me this about giving back. The second part of the story is so when Prince died right? they did a tribute concert for him and uh, I called the organizers and I said hi. Um, my name is Alex Munoz and Prince gave me some really good advice back in the day I, I will do anything I will sweep the streets I will sell popcorn I will sell hot dogs I'll be an usher I'll do security I just want to in my own way pay tribute to this great artist because he helped he gave me some advice that I'll never ever forget so they said we'll call you right back and what happened was two hours later they called back and they said we googled you and you're a filmmaker why don't you do a film celebrating Prince and I said a lot of concerts ten days away I can't possibly make a good enough film and I said how what if I document it so I went to document this Prince tribute concert and um, the very first interview I did is is happened to be in the same exact spot when Prince told me the four purple cornerstones it was like oh my god this is where Prince told me to remember God remember where you come from break the bowls and always get back and I felt really inspired like my body was like trembling because I was you could feel his presence in that area it was the concert it was right in front of LA City Hall which is where they shot the video. How uncanny is that? Then um, I went out to the audience and interviewed some people about the concert and Stevie wondered does this amazing rendition of Purple Rain. So I'm trying to get backstage to interview Stevie and I can't get to him and the guards are saying you can't talk to Stevie he doesn't want to be bothered. So one of my FYI film alumni from Hawaii, Adrian Kelly, sees me and says hey um, Alex what are you doing here? And I said oh I think I told you when I taught FY films that when I taught the film workshop that my first experience on a film set was being Prince of Standard. He said yeah, yeah but what are you doing here? I said I'm doing a documentary. He said, well, why do you look mad? I said, because Stevie gave the best performance and I want to interview him and they won't let me get backstage. And he said, oh, I could help you. And I said, Adrian, that's really nice of you, but you can't help me. He said, Alex, I could help you. He goes in the back, comes back and he says, come on, he takes me to Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder's nephew.
6: Oh, wow.
0: So wow. I felt like it was full circle. So I mean I got like chicken skin right now because Prince tells me the importance of giving back. I'm there to do a documentary about this concert. I can't get to Stevie. Turns out one of my alumni never told me he was Stevie Wonder's nephew. Gets me backstage because I believe I had access to Stevie and all of Prince's backup singers and all of Prince's backup dancers. Because if I didn't teach that FYI film workshop in Hawaii I would have met Adrian. And then two years later I see Adrian at this concert and he gets me backstage. That's karma. That is oh I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And I told Adrian I said why didn't you ever tell me you were Stevie Wonder's nephew. He said I don't know you know Munoz. I don't want people my family we don't want people to like us just because we're related to Stevie so we just but but you earned it because you've come to our birthday parties and our fourth of July parties and you never asked any questions and you showed us love anyway so okay now you know. So, I mean, what a, what a blessing, right? That
6: oh my gosh. one of my story. alumni
0: is Stevie Wonder's nephew and little did I know that two and a half years later I would need him to complete my doc.
6: Right, and you're in the same spot where yeah. you first met Prince. So yes. it was a music
0: video
7: back yes. in the day yes. in front of LA City Hall? Yeah.
6: Wow. Chapter 5, The Cat House by Jack Perez.
7: We had a feral cat. We, we've always had feral cats come to our house because we have lots of cats. And a feral cat, a wild cat, We'll we'll just sense that cat people live there, and a feral cat obviously cannot be pet, or touched uh, or anything. They're they're wild animals, but we've done this over the years and we fed feral cats. So, uh, you know, I guess it's a little bit over ten years ago, we were moving from our apartment, and just as we were about to move, a feral cat showed up, and it was like, feed me, and I, we were like, yes, yeah, so of course we'll feed you, but we're moving. And it, we were faced suddenly with this prospect of like, what are we going to do? This, this this animal is like dependent upon us now, but we're moving. It got to the point where I was like literally driving across town every day <laughs> to leave food. It's this empty house, the cat was standing there. It was the saddest thing. He's he's like, where's my food? And I'm like, I'm driving across town. We I can't keep this up. I can't expect the new tenants to to take care of him or whatever. So I started looking into rescues and looking into um, that whole world. And it's a you know. A, Again I became educated I was like wow, there's just, there's just tons of kill shelters. If you bring an animal to a regular shelter likely they will be killed. Certainly a feral who can never be adopted, rarely. Um, what do you do with a feral cat? And so after a lot of research I found this one place which I had never heard of, the Cat House on the Kings which was this one woman's massive property up near Fresno that she had turned in this ranch-style multi-acre property into this sanctuary an adoption center where she had, you know, almost a thousand animals that were totally cared for. It wasn't an I wasn't a hoarder. It was like an operation. Sure. Mm-hmm. And she was like, "Yeah, you know, we actually have a feral, you know, s- section and if you can catch him, you know, you can bring him here." Wow. And I was like, "Wow." And where all everybody else was like, "We're full up and they'll kill him and all." This was the one place. And when I, when I went up there, it was like one woman and a couple of you know, maybe one other person and all of these animals and I was like this was like the definition to me of like a saint like this was like this woman who had dedicated her whole life to to these animals literally and was like making it work. She, she definitely needed help but she, and I, I said to myself my god well what what can I do in exchange for this you know you save this cat's life and these thousands of other dogs and cats. So I decided to make this YouTube video. I said I'll come back and I'll do a portrait of you and the place, in a couple of minutes, and you know we'll put it on YouTube. And this is when YouTube was sort of new, you know, and and it just we just as luck would have it, there were enough cat people out there that it started to go viral, and people really saw that this was a this beautiful soul that was doing something so unique, and she started to get donations, and it started to get more well known, and now, you know. 10 13 years later it's a it's a it's considered you know it's a very well known institution you know around the world people come from all over the world to visit this place and support support it you know my wife has said you know it's the most important film you ever made was that film for the cat house because you know talking about direct action that film because it went viral because i made it because it exists and it reached people that that institution that sanctuary received much needed donations that saved a lot more animals and so in terms of doing something that's valuable truly valuable that little film you know when I think about it you know is, is you know definitely up there as being an important movie of mine just because it helped it ultimately helped a lot of animals.
6: Chapter 6
8: Station Fire by Andy Ridziewski
7: do you still have the mini DV
8: tapes? Uh, no, collecting I, dust. Somewhere? Unfortunately, you know it's a bummer. I uh, about let's see, this would have been 11 years ago. Uh, my house that was renting uh, burned down in one of the LA at the time, the biggest fire in LA, and I lost all of my wow. films. I lost all my writing, all my art. I used to, you know, draw, and it was it was it still still kind of stings, but. You know, truthfully it was a big um, reset button I, I it, it it has helped me with uh, attachment and having a lack of it uh, it was the year after my house burned down I just kind of lived on the road for a year I could fit everything I owned in a backpack and so I slept on couches I flew out to Hawaii and slept uh, on my buddy's hotel room while we were working on a movie out there like it was my life was uh, a bit of an adventure which I think was good I think it was it was an interesting life for a time uh, but the at the sacrifice of losing you know, all basically everything I had created up until 30 years old essentially
6: was this the station fire
8: yeah the station yes, fire yeah. I remember it yeah it was it was yeah it was a a strange time strange time it's it's funny to think that that's so long ago because it does feel so uh, relevant to my life like it really I'm it's it's altered some of my way of approaching things and and purchases feel strange to me still furniture and I like owning things still feels a little weird a little ptsd I think you know, I, I, I my life has been good since then so it's I just one of the stepping stones I guess who knows
6: aside from it you losing all these things and and, and that being the, the horrible like negative side and, and losing in a sense your parts of yourself really mm-hmm. went, went down in that fire yeah. do you think it showed you how temporary things are and, and you looked at things in a new light in, in a positive way that way
8: yeah, I would for sure say the silver lining of losing everything is that you, the idea of impermanence becomes a lot easier to grasp. And I for sure, it's the impermanence of everything—life, health. I mean, friendships. You know, you just never. I think I take some of those things less for granted now. Perhaps I hope. I don't know. Uh, And I do wonder, you know, 20 years from now, what will the scars of that look like? Will they still be there? Will I, you know, I don't know. I moved into a house a year ago uh, after living in someone else's house for basically 10 years. I had like a wing of a house to myself. And uh, when I moved into my place last year, I owned nothing. I had no bed. I didn't have a chair, a desk. I had nothing. And so, 11 years at well 10 years I guess at the time after the fire was the first time that I was like okay I gotta purchase some things uh, and it felt it still feels odd I can feel the weight of those things I liked I liked the idea that it you know, any particular morning not to say I would do this necessarily but that I could just kind of pack up everything into my car and be on my way and that's everything that's all I need so yeah. I don't know. It's strange. I think I'm still uh, processing all of it, you know, in terms of its ultimate lessons.
6: No, things do own you. It's true, yeah. Mm
8: -hmm. Yeah, they have a weight for sure, yeah.
6: Chapter Seven Last Moments
8: by
3: Adisa. Ten years ago, I went to Sierra Leone with Isaiah Washington on a documentary uh, film shoot. And on that shoot, uh, that shoot literally would change my life. Uh, Not only did I get exposed to Sierra Leone, and um, the conditions over there because they had just undergone a civil war and Isaiah was looking up his roots and I was part of the documentary team. I had a great experience but when I came back I had a near-death experience because I had a virus over there called the hantavirus and when I got back to uh, LA um, I mean I was, just, I was just fatally ill and I had to be rushed to the hospital. I was in the ICU and uh, my heart stopped beating three times. I had uh, multiple organ failure. And I was in really bad shape and the doctors didn't think I was gonna make it nobody thought I was gonna make it so my mother at that time flew up here and uh, people were just praying I mean I was just in critical condition and uh, but miraculously I made it through yeah I made it through
6: did they know what it was
3: they didn't at the time they didn't and uh, it was a good thing that I was at what they called uh, I was at Daniel Freeman Memorial Hospital and they were like, oh, thank God you didn't go to like Cedar Cyanide. Because at Daniel Freeman Hospital, they could bring in other technicians from everywhere. Like they could bring in people from UCLA, they could bring in doctors from USC to, uh, to help on my case, right? Whereas I've been Cedars, they have like clear rules about Cedar Cyanide doctors working there and you can't bring others in. But because I was at Daniel Freeman Hospital, they were able to bring in other doctors. So nobody knew what I had. All I knew was I had multiple organ failure and my body was shutting down. And this one particular doctor stayed with me, and he had to restart my heart three times in the middle of the night. And so, yeah, no, it, was, it looked like I was on my deathbed. It looked like I was on my death. And actually, I thought I was on my deathbed too. The only thing that kept me going was the fact that, because at one point, at one point, I remember myself making um, sort of this uh, resolve that, like, you know what, I'm going if I'm gonna die, my last moments were in Africa. My last moments were playing with children. My last moments were with, like, you know, um, having fun and, and sharing of my gifts with everybody. Because that's where that's what I was doing. After we giving out soccer balls, and, and I had made some serious, rela- some nice relationships over there. So I said, you know what? If I gotta go, then so be it. I had made I had made peace with it, you know. And uh, but it was another plan for me. It was another plan. I'm here.
6: And how long were you in the hospital?
3: I was there for about. Uh, I was probably there for about seven to eight weeks total but for for like three weeks I was sedated and I was under heavy sedation as doctors treated me and put me on dialysis and we just you know trying everything to fix me trying everything to make me better but nothing worked and they didn't know so they said they just had to let it run its course and just let me be uh, you know just let me be sort of get let my body fight it when I got back and I had gotten well I shocked everybody because I told my mother I wanted to go back to Africa and she was like oh no you can't go back to Africa oh no you're not going to do that to me again my mother was beside herself my father uh, everybody tripped out I mean they were like no you can't go back because I got an opportunity to go back with um was it Regina King yeah Regina King the actress had invited me to go back and work with her on her documentary and so they were like no you can't go back you can't go back especially going back to Sierra Leone the same place and so people were freaking out like freaking out and uh, but I was resolved I was like you know what I'm better I can do this and I wanted to do this I wanted to be there were some things that had happened to me by being sick you know like I was having revelations around my life and what I wanted to do with my life and and how I wanted to show up and so yeah and going back to Africa was part of it. I think the light had turned on more I'm not going to say it was completely different I mean I was like I was already like a very positive optimistic person wanting to do things but I was probably stopping myself like the the tournament in Africa and working with the kids. I never thought I could do that. You know like there was something about the way I was living life that I felt like um, that was larger than what I could do, right? And so I started to. So yes to answer your question once I got better I started to test the boundaries more like around greatness and largeness and saying that I can do it. I can do that. Why not? Right? And so yeah, in that way. And then having to experience death also i mean, it just gives you this sense of I'm not saying immortality but to experience and be that close to death and to know that it can be snapped away from you at an instant it it kind of sharpened my focus about living life in the present moment to moment and doing as much as I can in that moment.
6: Chapter 8, Amy Purdy's Journey by barbara seymour giordano
4: essentially amy's story is that at 19 she contracted meningitis and she died essentially and then was brought back but she'd gone to the hospital she it, what it does it, she was so advanced in it that the the um, body tries to save the organs and the blood rushes from it so uh, r- rushes from the vital organs and your hands turn purple. Her feet turn purple, her cheeks and nose. And when it happens, it's like frostbite. And so when they got her to the hospital, um, it was touch and go. She she actually did pass away very briefly, and they wow. brought her back. Um, but it was touch and go for a long, long time. And then um, in the end, they had to uh, to amputate her legs from the ankles down or the calves down and uh, both of them and but everything else was saved I mean she did have a lot of other she lost hearing in her ear she had all of these issues so here she was this story and she'd done a lot already at this point you know she had been in a Madonna video and she'd done all these things but I had to because she'd done so many things I had to weigh and measure what was important in the story and that's where. I had to trust my intuition and where I could actually look at this guide of the hero's journey because her life story this particular incident fit perfectly in it so it isn't a life story it's not an autobiography it's a moment in time and a great speech is it doesn't try to cover too much it's a very narrow subject and this narrow subject for amy was her life this life where she no longer she had to let go of the old amy to embrace the new Amy and we wrote that in there and every time she goes every every time I say that line I cry And I was like good yay (laughs) but that was the middle part of the hero's journey the very point where she then begins to embrace the journey that she's on so even though you go over the threshold right you go through the steps of and I can't remember all of them but there's that low point in the circle right and that's where she began to rise like a phoenix from the ashes and she began to bring back what she learned of course to cross back over and bring the elixir back um, to the world which was a speech so it was really about her experience and what she learned and the struggles that she went through and how hard it was but yet how she wouldn't change a thing right And so I had to figure out do we keep the madonna video part in there because my speakers use slides right the majority I think I've only worked with a couple who have not Mm -hmm. Um, in high resolution photos I don't occasionally I let them use text if it's important to the story but the the images are wallpaper that really um, helps the emotion stick so the story will be stickier if the the resolutions and the photos of the resolution the resolution of the photos Are super emotional the photos themselves, and she had a lot of emotional photos. And so uh, we chose the the most important parts of the story. So we had to take them the audience low to the lowest point to bring them back up again in the journey where she was resurrected.
6: So she does the TED talk, and then what's the response within Um, what amount of time? So this is
4: so exciting because it's a TEDx talk, right? So this is 2011, and and she's like okay I did the talk it's been posted it took like a month before they posted it great and this was probably so we did it in May it probably went up in June crickets giddy 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 she got about 20,000 hits and through December and then I think it was in December uh, all of a sudden she calls me like completely worked up oh my god Barbara what? go look at the TED talk. They had taken the TEDx talk and put it on the TED page. Oh. And they don't do that shit. anymore, but they they did it for her. And so that's where you can see it is on the TED page. They put it on the TED page. And once that happened, it went viral. Wow. And she's like people are writing in arabic like a month later (laughs) it just started going everywhere and we were watching it tick through like you know 30,000 40,000 50,000 by the hour and we're like oh my gosh this is so exciting and yeah so she just captured the hearts and minds of so many people her story and it's it's remarkable story and she's a remarkable woman just a really beautiful on the outside but equally as beautiful on the inside.
6: Chapter 9 Instinct by Walid Azami
9: I worked with Madonna and I worked on a world tour and I befriended a friend of mine now a really good friend Jamie King who is a creative director of the tour and like so many other artists and he so just glaze over that real fast so he would watch me come in and look at everything like everything I would like inspect like crazy. Because I knew where I was, I knew that I'm gonna learn so much from this woman, and um, I left that job, and I left that job. And out of the blue, he just texted me one day. He's like, "Hey, Walid, how are you? Let's go get dinner. I wanna know what you're up to." And so I went to dinner with him, and I drove up from Anaheim at the not Anaheim. I think no, I was in, whatever Anaheim or Fullerton, one of those two cities in Orange County at the time. And I drove up to LA. And I met him for dinner but what he did not know is that I was dead broke 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 okay and this is pretty much right at the birth of the 2008 great recession so I had quit being a music video director's assistant I had done some pa jobs Um, I was the worst pa you could ever hire on I mean the amount of effort I put into not looking busy it was exhausting and I thought just do the work, you know, but like trying to walk back and forth and like look busy without really doing the stuff. So Jamie had called me, he's like, I want to know what you're up to. And um he had a plan. And he had a plan. So we went up and had dinner, and another friend, Dog, who was a very talented director, joined us also, and he asked me. Um, what are you doing now I'm broke at this time I have a credit card and I probably have like three four hundred dollars in my savings and that was it because you don't get paid much as an assistant in Hollywood you know and so um, and I had quit that to try to do some behind the scenes video like MTV's making the video and I got one or two jobs and then it just stopped but I didn't know that the recession was born you know and so I had stopped for everyone but people hadn't been honest about it yet that something happened overnight right and um, so I went to dinner with them and they were asking me like so what are you doing and I and I would say well I want to and he's like shut up and I thought what and I said and I was so confused because I thought hey you're asking me what I'm doing or what I want to do and I'm telling (laughs) you you're telling me to shut up and we did this a few times back and forth and he said don't talk again until you're actually doing it because trying is lying and I don't know if he actually said trying is lying or if I picked that up somewhere else but uh, but the meaning is the same trying is lying. So you're doing it or you're lying to yourself but you're not lying to me, right? And And he was really rough with me so he broke me that night and he rebuilt me that night and he gave me one of the best lessons I've ever learned in my life. I actually practiced it without really knowing what it was. And he gave me this thing I'm going to tell you right now and he said no matter what country you're from no matter what faith you practice or you don't practice um, gender national uh, anything doesn't matter what socioeconomic level one of the first things that any human being learns one of the first words is no because we are told no so many times and he said it's not the hearing no That's bad. It's why we're telling people no. No, I don't want people to think you're a bad baby. I don't want people to think that I'm a bad mother. I don't want, you know, be a good little girl and be quiet, right? Be a good boy. Don't show your emotions. Be tough. And so we are the only living creatures on this planet that teach our children to kill their instincts. And so we're sending people out there to conform and you have to to a certain extent not to be a freak in society right but you were sending people out there and we're taking away their greatest tool that fight or flight you know and so he said if your instincts tell you to do something go do it I don't care if you think you're going to look like a fool if your instincts tell you don't get in this car right now don't get in that car let everyone think you're crazy but that is a direct phone call." from you to God or Allah or energy or the the universe or whatever you want to think is bigger than you. Okay? A greater power. And he said, that's a direct phone call that you're getting at any moment. So he gave me examples, he said, how many times have you thought about somebody? And then they text you and you're like, that's so weird, I was thinking about you. It's like that's a connection how many times has a mother been at work and she's like something is wrong something is wrong with my baby and they call the babysitter like yeah there was a small accident you know he or she is fine that mother knows there's a connection right and so he said the the closest you'll ever be to God or again whatever I, I don't want people getting lost on that part of it or whatever higher power mother nature um, is when you listen to your instincts and he's like if you want to photograph everybody in all green paint go do it something is telling you this is going to be good for your career. Now that night so that's what I mean by he broke me and then he rebuilt me and he was setting in an infrastructure that I had already been using and how I, I've i acted in a lot in my earlier career in my school and everything Sorry, that's okay. And so he had set like the, the structure the infrastructure of like things that I a, a guideline and I had been doing it but I didn't know this was my instincts okay and um, I went home thank God he paid for dinner because I did not have money to even pay for my portions and we had like drinks and dessert and appetizers and I'm like oh my god <laughs> you know this is expensive and he set me on my way and for like a week after I had um, this weird feeling apparently it was my instincts but this weird foreign feeling that i should buy a camera but i didn't look, when i tell you i did not even know that a, a camera you can detach a lens from a camera like a dslr or i guess mirrorless now whatever i did not even know you could do that i didn't know what an iso was i knew nothing nothing about a camera and so but i had this feeling go buy a camera jobs are not coming in rent is coming up and I only have a few hundred bucks on a credit card left and I sat on it and I pushed it down and it just kept persisting kept persisting for I want to say a week week and a half or something like that this feeling was there and it would not go away and I don't know what made me but I decided to listen to my instincts and I went into a camera shop and um, and I I'm such so naive but I went in and I said, "Hi, I I have two thousand dollars my credit card." And I said, "I have two thousand dollars, and I want to be a photographer." And he sold me like one thousand nine hundred ninety-eight dollars and whatever. There was nothing else left in the store to buy, not even AA batteries, because it was like it was. I mean, they maxed out my card, and I bought a a forty D, which is not even a real. It was like a prosumer camera, and. It was a good camera but I'm just saying it wasn't like it was whatever it was like a rebel today or something and I had I sat in my car and I remember the most nauseous feeling and I thought what did I do I even now I can't even get a cash advance on my last credit card because I maxed that sucker out I went home and just I was just I was a mess and what a dramatic person but I was a mess you know and I thought man. I don't even know how to turn this thing on. Like no joke, I have no idea how to turn this thing. I did not know what a single I didn't know a single thing. OK? But, uh, but I started shooting things like um, leaves on a tree and a trail of ants, and it was all horrible pictures. I got a call, because I wanted to do behind-the-scenes video and I got a call because of a friend of a friend of a friend and they were like hi is Wallet there I'm like huh? <laughs> right and I was like yes <laughs> what are you selling <laughs> Stranger, <me. laughs> exactly and they said hey somebody said you have a video camera and at the time it was like the uh, mini dv tape so there was some, they were like hey you I heard you have a um, an hd camera and because everyone was using the panasonic dvx 100 which was like not fully hd I think um, whatever but I said yes and I was so excited because I can buy food now okay and put food in the fridge and they said Usher needs somebody to come to the Kodak theater right now and I'm packing everything in a bag throwing everything didn't even have camera bags like I put them in a gym bag and stuff and I'm about to close the door and that weird feeling in my gut said Usher doesn't know why you're hired. It's his manager. Go get that stupid camera you just bought too, the still camera. And I grabbed it, and I ran in the car. And I remember I had a little BlackBerry Curve with the ball, and I wrote f-stop means this, ISO means this, and you know aperture means this, whatever. And um. And that was pretty much our shutter speed, and and and. I I went there. I went underground, like two three levels. I said hi to usher, and I'm one of those people that when I'm nervous, I look like I look like I'm hiding a bomb. I'm telling you, it's like this. It just looks so bad, you know. And um, I don't have a poker face whatsoever. And I was just shooting stuff, and I decided to put the video camera on a tripod in the corner. So now it looks like a security camera. But Usher has the footage and I wish I I had it but um, of me trying to figure this out and look at my BlackBerry I'm like okay this button did this and I'll take pictures and I didn't even know that um, I had a one gigabyte card, CF card. So my compact flash was one and I was shooting on JPEG small. Did not even know about these settings that they existed or that raw was such a thing okay and I'm shooting and I'm shooting machine gun style because I'm banking on quantity here not quality and pictures are like because they have the the neon tubes pictures are coming out like all different colors but it is not the color you want to see and usher's coming out blurry um, because I'm apparently on like like not even at 40 I think it was like it was basically. It was. I pretty much almost had the bulb button. You know, the, like it was just dragging the shutter. Everything was blurry, and I'm ramping up the ISO as high as possible. I'm just hitting any button, okay? And usher looks at me and says, "What f-stop are you using?" <laughs> and yo, when I tell you I have mastered how to die on the inside and keep a calm face, or I think I'm keeping a calm face. I that gut feeling said walk away. I was on autopilot. I don't think that was valid that day, okay? I was on autopilot. That gut feeling said walk away and I remember it was instant and said it's better that he thinks you're a crazy artist than someone who has no idea which was the truth, okay? And um, actually now I think both are true (laughs) but um, I went upstairs, I looked up. Again, because I wrote F stop, but I had to look up. I'm like, what did this mean? You know, with all these performers, street performers, um, and I'm like, come on, Verizon, you know, like (laughs) give me the reception and everything. And I went back down in case he asked me and I wrote it down because I'd be like, F stop is this? I'm like, I am using 5.6, you know, but he didn't ask me again and I just kept shooting. I went home, I went home and um, sewed down. And I looked at all the pictures and I did not even know that photoshop exists I did not know photoshop was a thing the whole institute of adobe was not even in my in my spectrum whatsoever okay so I decided to download all the pictures open them up individually inside the preview like what you would open up a pdf in and so you have the option of Bringing down contrast exposure saturation hue and that's about it and I'm looking at these pictures I'm like I don't know where Usher is because everything is blurry I can't tell you know anything and out of that I probably pulled under 10 images that you can identify it was Usher and that he was actually in focus on accident okay and I pulled up about 10 of them and this is me opening a, a a picture one at a time i'm like no next it was a disaster okay and then i it was like i did not even know such a thing of lightroom existed so i would take them in one folder copy them paste them into a second folder as i'm as i'm eliminating which pictures i want you know and narrowing down and i found about 10 12 maybe nine i don't know but i i opened them up in that preview panel and I thought, oh my God, they're every color under the rainbow. And I remember again that that instinct was really in play, and was like, just turn it all black and white. Oh and I turned them, I desaturated all of them, and I boosted the contrast a little. But they were already blurry sometimes, and they were already high, high, high ISO, so super grainy, and. I sent them to Benny Medina who was Usher's manager at the time now he does J-Lo and I think J-Lo only and um, they called me within like 30 minutes and they said Waleed I don't know how you guessed it but we sent the pictures to Usher and his whole new thing for the new album is old Hollywood and he wants these black and white grainy imperfect images and so we want to know. Would you be willing to work with him and be his personal photographer oh my gosh and that like that to me is like that's the perfect story in my career of following your instincts and just having faith in it I mean I know that people are listening to this and like he's crazy like how am I going to take that chance but that was me just following instincts from the start Mm -hmm. and going there's a there's this weird feeling and I don't know what's going on I'm going to follow it and every single day I would learn one new thing on YouTube and I would type things like what does exposure mean and I would study it because a history major You know, ask me about the civil war I'll tell you everything about it you know? but, and that was um, and I would learn that one thing and then I was not allowed to go to bed until I learned one new thing every single day so after a week it was no big deal after a month it was no big deal. By the end of the second month I started, started adding up the things that I knew you know and so usher would say hey let's shoot over there I'm like no let's not because I hadn't even reached that yet I was just on natural window light you know and I was like no that's not let's just stand over here and do it and I would just so whatever I learned the night before I would practice it on him the next day and he's like you have such a vast style <laughs> like you do so many things I'm like dude you don't even know like I'm on YouTube every night like learning things and then coming downstairs and practicing it on you. And I learned
5: how to photograph on tour with Usher.